Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Scott McKenna Podcast. I appreciate you being here this afternoon, this evening, this morning, whenever you're listening to it. Thanks for giving me your ears. Today's episode is really going to be catered a lot more to the wedding filmmakers who follow my content. Even if you're not into wedding films, I think you'll still find this episode valuable. But I got a chance to sit down with Rob Adams of Rob Adams Films. And if you've been in the wedding industry for a while, you've probably heard of Rob Adams Films. They are recognized as a very high-end, high-quality wedding cinematographer company and they've been doing it for a long time. They have lots of experience and it's been cool to have this conversation with Rob as I've heard just over 20 years of experience in video, just how much change he's seen, how many different things have really changed the wedding industry and even the video industry in general. So just a really cool conversation. Got a chance to talk a little bit about the interesting dynamic that him and his wife have as well, both being in the wedding industry. Vanessa, his wife, is into photography where he does the video side, but just a very cool perspective perspective that I'm sure a lot of people don't get to experience. They don't work together as a team. They are separate entities, um, which he talks about some pros and cons of that, obviously, but just a great conversation. So I'm going to get right into it. I'm going to stop boring you with my intro, and I hope you love the episode. Would love for you to connect with me on Twitter at Scott W. McKenna. Tell me what you think. Ask some questions. Would love to engage with you more. Thanks for being here. Enjoy the episode. Well, Rob, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate you being on the podcast. First off, I got to say, congratulations. New addition to your family. How are you and Vanessa settling in there? We're settling in. We're handling it. It's it's a, it's a little bit of an adjustment in the beginning because we're just trying to maintain our current um, working lives. You know, we, we, we always said if we had kids, we didn't want it to be a complete disruption of everything. Uh-huh. And, and boy, did we we realize that's just impossible. So oh we're, goodness, we're, we're yes. just maintaining right now. And it's working out. Um, we have help. We have an au pair that lives with us. So that definitely helps us to find the working hours. But then, of course, you always feel like you're neglecting your kids when you're working too uh-huh. much. So we're trying to find that balance. But, it's, you know, with one, we found it uh, uh, palatable and, and, and possible. But with two, we're finding it like much more difficult. But we're making it work. It is tar- it, it, It's tough and it's something, you know, like anything you get used to a little bit. But, you, you know, you I think you and Vanessa are in an interesting situation because you both run and own your own businesses. So it's not like you you both set your own schedules, but at the same time, you both obviously work more than you probably would working an actual just regular full-time job. And so how do you guys kind of deal with that? How do you work on it around your schedules? We've tried to create this environment where we, a certain point of the night comes and work time stops. So you know, we can only start our day so early because we have the kids in the morning and then, then our help arrives uh, and then we can sit down and work and then it takes us, uh, you know, a little while to get up to speed. And then six o'clock comes and we want to have dinner as a family. Mm-hmm. So we don't neglect that family time. We don't say, OK, well, we're just going to work through dinner or you go eat dinner with the kids and I'm going to work. We both stop and we sit down and we have dinner and that is our family time. And then we usually spend time putting the kids to bed. And then after that, we have a choice. We can either take recreational time for ourselves. And by this point, you're talking, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock. Yeah. Um, you're or you're we can, exhausted by then, too. <laughs> yeah. And then a lot of times it's like, oh, I really should go work on that. But oh, I just don't feel like it. Or, you know, yeah. I'd rather just sit here and drink wine with my wife. Yeah. So, you know, but there is an option there. If we're under the under pressure or under a deadline or I'm trying to get a video done, I can say, hey, I'm going to 
I'm going to bang this out for a couple more hours and I'll come to bed. Yeah, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's it's and it's that nonstop conversation they have with, you know, all entrepreneurs. It's the work life balance. It's it's a difficult, difficult thing. And it's really important. I think the communication between your spouse, whether they do their own business as well, it's just important to have conversation and communication of like what what is OK for us, because there's not a norm. The work life balance, I don't think exists. I think it's just about how it exists for you and how it exists with the communication that you have with your spouse. And it's just something that I see so many people struggle with and try to figure out, well, what's too much and what's too little? Well, just talk about it <laughs> and, it's, yeah, and, and make it work. They, don't, they also don't tell you about the other things uh, that come along with just parenting and that work-life balance, but birthday parties, mm-hmm. gymnastics, um, all these extracurricular activities. And then, oh, wow, the kids, it's time for the kids to go to school. Oh, my gosh, we got to think about this. So, like, aside from just parenting in the home and then trying to work alongside of it, you're also trying to find room and time for all these other things that are part of life and that that's where the real challenge comes in yeah no for sure it's definitely something that yeah i don't think you ever really solve it just evolves over time and especially with young kids it's just really really hard but but that's another whole topic this one's not entirely about work-life balance i want to dig in and i want to talk to you a little bit about kind of your business you uh, for those who don't know you, which I think a lot of people that are in the wedding industry know who you are. Rob Adams Films has been in business how many years now? This is our 12th year as an entity, but I've been doing weddings for 22. That's ridiculous. So what I want to talk about is obviously before Rob Adams Films got to what it is today, which is a a very well-respected high-end wedding cinematography company, um, you obviously had to learn a little bit about how to actually shoot, how to get into this at all. So can you kind of, in a summary, bring us back to 22 years ago, or probably before then, how did you kind of get into video how'd you get into kind of what you're doing today it's a lot to cram in but i'll try to i'll try to condense i'll condense it for you you yeah so i I went to uh, college to be an art major and i was in my first drawing class and i realized by looking at the other kids work and the talent level around me that i wasn't going to make it it just wasn't going to happen and not that i didn't have faith in myself but i realized in that moment uh, i really just don't feel like i fit here so um, after floating a year in college with no major, I redeclared as a radio television major just on the suggestion of a friend who said, hey, come over to radio television. It's, it's fun. Never even thought about getting into broadcasting, didn't have any dreams or aspirations of it. So I ended up being a sort of a prodigy in that realm. I, I took to it very quickly. The production side came to me so easily. And this is before the digital age. This is, you know, VHS to VHS tape and uh, beta, beta SP was just bursting onto the scene. And this is 1996, 1995, actually. Um, so digital wasn't even really on any consumer level radar at all. So, you know, I had to learn, um, you know, tape to tape and, and analog video and audio. And then I was able to explore on my own because my college program didn't even have a digital system. Um, I, I expanded my, my own learning into the digital world as in its infancy learned it and ended up teaching my professors how to use the first versions <laughs> of NLE software. So I started with the video toaster and the first version of Adobe Premiere, and I, I sort of mastered those. And then I got into broadcasting on air. So I became an on-air personality. I was a news anchor for the college radio station. I was a jock at night. I would spin records. I would just anything I could do to get on the air. I just love being on the air. I love talking. I just had the gift of gab. Alongside of it, I had this production knowledge. So I would do the production for my own shows. You know, whereas it was always divided. You had on-air talent and you had production. Right. And the two rarely crossed over. Um, I was able to do both. So by my senior year, I was editing most of my 
um, uh, Pierce projects, I was being hired by the university to actually create medical videos of operations. <laughs> and this is this is in the day when uh, um, those operation shows were real big on TV. You know, mm-hmm. you had the top down view on an operating table and the doctors would be in there working on somebody's esophagus. They still are. They're just all fake now. Exactly. But this this is when they were they were, you know, is re- that was really that was reality yeah. TV. Right. So um, I started doing those for the university. It was crazy. I was like, here I was. I was a 19 year old kid. I was getting paid pretty good money to do video production. And I had no formal business training at all. So um, I sort of just really fell into it. So that obviously a ton has changed that. I mean, I didn't get into video kind of, I, I, I got into it right when kind of mini DV was just almost done. So that's as, that's as analog as it gets as far as when I got into it. And even that has changed unbelievably. Um, but it's, yeah, it's amazing to think about how much you've seen change in, in 25, 22 years of, of video. Wow. That a lot of stuff has changed. It's almost, it's almost like being in, manufacturing during the industrial revolution (laughs) it really has changed that much it's crazy yeah and you were here obviously obviously in the heart of the dslr revolution that you know the mark ii changed everything and that's initially kind of how i came across you i honestly you probably don't know this but one of the first ways that i learned how to ever shoot my first wedding was watching your course um, which is just cool and it's just cool that you've always been to me you know an educator that um likes kind of letting people in on kind of what you're doing um, which i think is cool and really valuable and so it's neat to see that so talk a little bit about how you kind of jumped into weddings you know why did you get into it so i had after college i had been in broadcasting doing both production and on air i was an on-air news anchor and i was also doing production behind the scenes for uh radio and tv so various jobs and in that business you jump around from station to station it's like wkrp in cincinnati and that's an old Mm -hmm. reference but if you get it you understand um so i actually wasn't making much money and and that was starting to affect my quality of life because i was doing what i enjoyed doing but i had no luxury in my life i had no comfort so I was living in Manhattan. The breaking point for me was I was living in Manhattan. I was working for a very prominent radio station in Manhattan. Um, I was living in a flat with four guys in Chelsea in a one room apartment. Um, and I was still paying almost $900 a month in rent. I was making $19,000 a year. And even in 1999, that was not a lot of money. So it was really, really tough. Um, so I started freelancing weddings as a dj and i wasn't i wasn't at first the primary dj i was the mixer i was the dude that stood behind the board pretending like he was doing something when in reality i was just trying to collect girls phone numbers that was basically (laughs) that was basically my job was to get paid 65 dollars to stand there and pretend like i knew what i was doing and occasionally hit a button so eventually did, did that actually work to get vanessa Oh, well, no, Vanessa came along later in a okay, much okay, better okay. situation. She's All smiling right. at me across would, the table I would right have now. just cracked up if that's actually the way that you guys met. No, well, we did meet on a wedding, but it wasn't until later on. Okay, so this, okay. this is, you're talking like 1999, right, 2000, turn of the century kind of stuff, right? right so I'm awesome. just meeting girls. But so um, I started DJing as a headliner and I hated it. I, I hated it, but I could make six, $700 in a weekend. And to me, that was a lot of money. So... One wedding, I'll never forget it. I was at a, uh, a Ramada Inn and I'm in this ballroom and I'm DJing this wedding and I'm watching the, uh, the videographer. And this is back when wedding video was wedding video. Okay. Yeah. You had a dude a huge with rig. a massive bogan rig yeah. 
on a huge dolly with a, uh, a Sony PD-150 attached to the top of it and a car battery to power it. Um, <laughs> and then a huge light, probably had like a 400 watt light on always top of on. this camera, always on. And just, and he's 700 pounds and he's <laughs> sweating and it's, it's just, so I'm looking at this guy and I, I go, you know what? I'm not going to judge. I want to talk to this guy at dinner. So we sit down for the vendor meal. And I said, listen, let me ask you a question, man. If you don't mind me asking, how much do you make? Is this your company? He's like, actually, I'm freelancing today. I said, how much do you make shooting weddings on the weekends? He goes, go well, on a good weekend. I, I make like 1200 bucks. And you're like, what? I didn't make 1200 bucks a month. <laughs> and I'm like, and I know just by looking at what this guy's doing, I can do a much better job. And if, <laughs> if, if not just completely destroy every business in this area. Right. So, and that wasn't my goal to get into it and then start competing at a level that it would, you know, just wipe everybody out. I'm just, it was purely monetary for me. And of course, you know, in the, in the news and TV world, weddings are, you looked at as the scum of the earth. You, you know, mm-hmm. if you're a wedding videographer that you're looking, and still today, I tell people I'm a wedding filmmaker and they go, you're not a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I eventually just bit the bullet and I said, I'm going to do this. And I started freelancing for a couple companies, but my breakthrough came when I got hired to teach this guy who had his own video company how to use a nonlinear editing system. So he hired me to come in and teach him a DPS velocity system. I don't even know if you guys know what that is. Nope. Um, it was made by a company called DPS at the time. They got bought out by Leach and then Harris. And then it was, it was a, a very innovative nonlinear program. It was actually on par with what like Adobe Premiere was in its early phases. But b- okay. before Adobe even got into the space, it was very cool. Um, so I started teaching, I taught myself the program and then I taught it to him and then he started hiring me as his editor. So I moved from freelancing shooting and now I'm back in the editing booth. So now I'm editing and I'm knocking out four or five, six weddings a week. This guy was a Syrian, uh, Orthodox Jew. So he would do these massive 1500 person, 2000 person weddings, four days a week in the Jewish community. And I would just pump these things out, just rocking and rolling. They're like, you know, hour long videos and I'm just cranking them out, cranking them out. Very little creativity involved. Just a little recap at the end. Then he asked me to start shooting for him because I kept telling him your shooters suck because they bring, <laughs> they bring me footage and I'd be like, your, your shooters are God awful. I mean, I'm telling you, they suck. Like you need to either train your shooters or have me do it. He goes, well, why don't you do it? So now I went from editing weddings four days a week to now shooting weddings five days a week um, and, and, and just I was working seven days a week. I was making probably a thousand dollars a week just doing that. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really good money for a 22 year old kid, you know? So here I am and I'm doing this for about four or five years. And the owner of the business asks me if I want to cut in on the business. So I ended up taking 33% of the business. I'm working, doing, a, I'm really running the guy's business. At that point I had taken over sales I was starting to branch out into the regular wedding market outside the Orthodox Jewish community. We were having a lot of success. We were doing bridal shows. I was booking, you know, you know, six, seven, eight jobs, a bridal show. So in in addition to being an editor shooter, I was now a salesperson and I was crushing it. Um, So he got sick. He ended up getting, he had lung cancer and I was trying to sustain the business for him, but it got to a point where he just was hands off completely. And it, it just made sense at the time that uh, I could, I had a choice. There was a crossroads. I could either um, move into my own business and leave him kind of hanging, which I didn't want to do. Or I could say to him, look, why don't you give me a larger, give me a larger cut of the business. and I'll run this thing for you. You just sit home, you get better and I'll give you a cut of this business. And he didn't want to do that. He was very proud about that. Mm-hmm. So 
I couldn't work. I mean, the amount of work I was putting in, I could have been running yeah, my own business. It just didn't make sense, right? Yeah, yeah. So now, now I'm 25 and I'm like, okay, now I got to make a move. And I made a move and I started my business in 2006. I started Rob Adams productions. Okay. Rob Adams productions was, you know, I was shooting, we weren't even shooting DSLR. We were shooting Sony video camera. I was doing about 30 weddings a year. In my first year, I did seven because I was transitioning. Second year, I booked 30 something weddings and I was doing them all myself. Then I hired an editor in 2007. She was helping me cut through the workload, but we were still always experiencing backlog. And then in 2008, everything changed when the 5D Mark II dropped. And then the business model just completely shifted. And ironically, that was right around the time that Vanessa and I started. Well, we met in 2005 at a wedding when I was working for the other company. And then in 2008, we started dating and she was a photographer. And here I am with this photo camera that shoots video. And we just this it was this natural chemistry that aside from our, you know, personal affection for each other, it was more like, wow, now we can merge these two right. mediums. And so that that's where fusion was born. Mm-hmm. Um, but out of that came my uh, increased knowledge of photographic techniques. So, and I had dabbled in photography and still photography. So I knew how, you know, exposure worked and ISO mm-hmm. and balancing it with shutter speed. And, you know, I knew how to use a photo camera manually and I always used video manually too. So this was a marriage made in heaven. And mm-hmm. to have that capability of the production value in a, such a small camera um, at a very little cost, relatively speaking, it was, that was it. That was, mm-hmm. it was, it was the natural direction to take Rob Adams productions. And Vanessa goes, you know, she's a marketing genius. Mm-hmm. She goes, you need to stop talking about video, video, video. You are now cinema, cinema, cinema. Uh, yeah. And, and at brand, the same, that brand shift, right. that name. And of course we were watching, you know, the heavy hitters. And, and here's the funny thing. I was not involved in the wedding video industry at all. So I was, I had a successful video business, but I was not involved in Weva. I was not, I didn't know who Ray Roman was. I didn't know I wasn't in any peer groups or a member of any of the local organizations. I was simply this island and I was just doing it on my own. I wasn't known to anybody else in the industry. And when I started doing DSLR work, then I started discovering Ray Roman and uh, and all these in still motion. And I'm like, holy cow, there's this whole other world out there um, that I didn't even know existed. I never looked at anybody else's work. I didn't attend any conferences. I didn't attend any meetings. I knew I knew a couple other videographers from, you know, just around around the way. But I was not involved in the industry on a social level. And you got to remember, this is before Facebook. This is before social media for the most part. Right. So there wasn't this ease of access. Yeah, it wasn't as easy. To, yeah, exactly. Right. People don't realize how good they have it now. The training resources and <laughs> that are just free millions by the millions online. Exactly. So this whole new world was open to me. And when I stepped in, it was like, wow. And then people started knowing who I was. And then I did creative live. And it was like, it was like, it's this massive explosion. And that's where the education side of things was born. Because it was like, Vanessa was already a teacher. She was literally a teacher. She was teaching elementary school and doing photography. But she was transitioning from a full time teacher to a full time photographer. So we had this all happening at the same time. We got married. We had a two businesses running side by side. We decided not to merge our businesses and, and keep them as two boutique entities, which I think looking back was probably one of the smartest and one of the dumbest moves we could have made. <laughs> yeah, um, pros and cons of both. Yeah. Cause I see comp, I see couples running one singular business and it seems like they've got so much more advantage because they're both working toward one goal. 
Whereas Vanessa and I are operating two completely separate companies and that's just like bananas. And then we have the education world on top of it. So it's, yeah, it's, I think it's, what's, what's interesting about you guys. And I know that I know you've touched on this in the past on your podcast when you used to have it too. What's probably unique and difficult in your situation is a lot of the one-stop shops are not both as high end as you guys are. So I think it's easy to have a one-stop shop when it's like, yeah, you pay us $2,000 for all the photo and video for your whole wedding. And people are like, bam, that's perfect. And I remember, I think a while back in one of your podcasts, when you talked about how there's almost a time where you're kind of like, well, if they book Vanessa, they probably won't be able to afford me and vice versa. So that's got to be a little tricky too in the realm, which we'll talk about more about, you know, the high end market as compared to just the everyday wedding videographer and photographer per se. Exactly. And that is the challenge we face is like, you know, you, you put the both of, both of us together where it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are brides out there that pay it and don't even flinch. Right. Um, and then that we've, we've, we've been really trying to dial into that market and, mm-hmm. you know, on our own, we both stand very high, highly regarded in the high end market on mm-hmm. photography and video, but together we're really trying to find that special sauce that gets us attractive to that one bride that'll plunk down, you know, 20, 30 grand. Right. For photo and that's video. kind of what I want to talk about a little bit kind of is this shift. So obviously in, in the wedding video, I'm doing air quotes right now, video, film, the whole industry in general, obviously prices are all over the map. And there's obviously has to be a shift at some point in your business where you kind of decide you're worth more than what you're currently charging, or you want to go into a higher end market. There's a lot of people that I talk to that are kind of in this market. I'm kind of in the in the middle market with what I do. I'm I'm not cheap, but I'm not at all yet in that high end market. Where where did you find you made that shift, or what kind of what kind of led to you deciding, hey, we're going to really dive into this market, into the higher end market per se? And what were some of the things that you um, advised? that you give to people that might be on that fence? Like, how do you develop a higher end brand in that market? I, I think the concept behind that was born out of business and marketing, not out of photo and video. So okay. Vanessa has always had a very good business mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had, you know, she's got four degrees, five degrees, four degrees. I don't even know, five. But she's very business oriented and marketing oriented. So she wasn't looking at her photo business like, Hey, I want to be the best wedding photographer on an artistic level, even though she did achieve that. Um, she was more like, how can I build this business? Right. So in having both of our businesses running side by side, it was what's the way to grow these businesses, the biggest they can be. And the way was to cross promote and target a a bride that wants both, but is willing to pay boutique prices. And we just sort of, we, we lean heavily on perceived value. So we would meet with brides and sell them on a higher price point with the added value of, hey, you've got a husband and wife team. Right. We are in love. We know love. We are recently married ourselves. We can relate to what you're going through. And look at this beautiful artistic product we can give you born out of that, out of that passion. And yep. then on top of it, it was like, okay, here's the formula. Every time somebody books our top package, we're going to raise our prices. We constantly raised our prices and and, yep. and adjusted our, our um, package structuring. Um, and you have to remember, let me preface this by saying, this probably doesn't work anymore because the industry at the time that we were doing this was not as saturated as yes. it is now. Yep. There were a lot of wedding photographers, a lot of wedding video, but the wedding cinema market was not like it is today. It is much more difficult to command a higher end price in the video market today because there's so many people. And I I don't want to sound 
crotchety and old and bitter, but there's a lot of people undercutting their markets in their oh, respective areas, yep. and that's bringing down the curve. So it's really tough to charge a higher price when there's somebody willing to do a, a, a similar work for much less. And sometimes I think it's not even necessarily that they are trying to undercut the market as much as some people are just so unexperienced in the actual like knowledge of what to charge. There are a lot of companies that I think start and they come out actually doing really good work and they're so underpriced that you're kind of like, dude, why are you charging that little? It's not, it's not actually helping the market. And I don't think it's even necessarily people, there obviously are, you know, companies that just straight up come in and try to undercut everything on price alone. But it's also just, I think, a lack of knowledge, a lack of kind of, it's so saturated that people just come in and, and they're so about just wanting to get the job that they'll do it for any price, which doesn't really make sense. I think it's also a bit of undervaluing your product and not understanding what the true costs are behind things. Because to somebody like, again, you go back to my beginnings when you say, oh, I can make $3,000 a wedding. That's a lot of money to somebody who's making $15 an hour working at a fast food restaurant, but has a talent for video. So that seems like a lot of money. But then you look at your breakdowns of costs and you realize Mm -hmm. that it's not. (laughs) Um, so I see guys doing great work charging $5,000 and that's still not enough. You should be up in the $8,000 range because $5,000, if you break it down, look at the amount of hours you're working and all your cost of sales and your cost of business, you're earning 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. People have to realize it's not, it's not one day of work. Like that's, and and that's also something you, you know, that's tough explained to couples every once in a while too, is that they, you know, there's so much, I always tell my couples that the the day of the shooting is, is the easiest and most stress-free stress-free part to me it's the editing and all that that actually is where all the cost goes but i found you know without question the the best time which you hinted on this which i really liked that when i talk to couples or when i think people talk to couples you really should be selling them so much more on the value of of you as a person your relationship how you view their wedding day and all that before you necessarily have to jump in and care about even necessarily the quality of what you do yet. I mean, I feel like when I started to raise my prices, when I started to get a higher end price, a lot of it was just selling the value of me and the importance that I had with their relationship and and, and just the actual day of. And maybe you could hint on some of the things that you feel like people um, could do to help just raise their value. If, they, if they're currently at a spot where you feel like they're doing good work and they're just well underpriced, what are some ways you found that just got people to kind of, I don't know, spend the money is the right word? Well, the way I look at it is if a bride is talking to you and you're meeting with them, they already like your work. You don't have to sell your work. Your work has already sold itself. Now you have to sell you. You have to sell them, you know, not just your personality, not just your enthusiasm for shooting their wedding. You have to make her feel confident that plunking down six thousand dollars is a good investment. Yep. Great point. So it's it's not just about like, hey, I I think this guy's going to make me feel good on my wedding day is is the bride going to have, she's asking yourself, am I going to have buyer's remorse? Yep. Or do I feel confident this person's not going to completely screw up my wedding? Yep. You know, so, I mean, and here's the thing, let's face it. Most videographers work is all starting to look the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to be a rehash of what happened in the mid nineties. You know, work, work came up a level with the DV market, you know, in digital video but then it plateaued and everybody's work started looking the same. And yep. then it wasn't until a revolution came in 2008 where the work went to another level and then the rest of the industry had to catch up. Yep. We're, we're going to find ourselves in that situation again. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but right now everybody's work to me looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what used to stand out to me amazingly like years ago, like Ray, Ray's work, I'd look at Ray's work and go, oh my God. Now I look at most videographers work and I say it looks like Ray's work. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is true. And or the more, word. the more and more people yeah. you get, it's different. So how do you set, you know, how do you separate yourself? I don't even think it's a matter of changing your style or having a different style because now styles are so, you know, the, the world is such a smaller place now. So like, it's almost like it's almost regional, like work in the Northeast looks so much different than the work that's done in the Pacific Northwest and the work that's done in the Caribbean so much different than the work. Is so it's like we're all looking at each other's work on, on a global stage. And I don't think you can really do any one thing to make your work stand out to a point that brides are going to book you over somebody else based on the work alone. It really has to come down to. Uh, a combination of things. A, they have to like you. They have to think your price is fair and not overinflated to where they think you're, they're being jacked. Uh, and then they have to get value for their money and they have to love the work. So you, you really have to be well-rounded. Now, it does shift again because, you know, if you're middle market and you're you're doing a good job selling yourself and you're booking at a, at a reasonably high price that you're that you're happy with and you're doing enough weddings where you're making a, a overall good, a large amount of money, um, it does change again. When you get up into the really high end market, a lot of the brides that I meet with now don't even really care so much about me. A lot of them just say, you're well known. Your work is really good. What does it take to book the job? You know, what do I have to yeah, do? It's to a little bit of a different switch. Yeah. And they're not all like that. Some of them still want to price shop. And I get a lot of people that like fall in love with my work and they like me, but they just can't justify the cost. Or I get brides that literally call me up the same day and book. It's almost like quantum physics and quantum mechanics. You get down to this this subatomic level, this sub-molecular level where it's just so... The, the math just starts falling apart and, and right. the formula starts falling apart. And I, that's where I'm thinking I'm finding myself right now. But that middle... I almost wish I was middle market. I almost wish I can go back to a, a market where I can charge five $6,000 mm-hmm. and I can book 30 weddings. But if I do that, then I'm really going to have to cut a lot. I'm going to have to really reduce the quality of what I do because right. I couldn't spend the time and the effort that I do on my films and charge that little. Yep. Uh, it would just, it wouldn't be worth it for me. Yep. And so one of the things I'm going to talk about that I think is so important too, I talk about a lot on my um, YouTube channel is just the, the idea of relationships, um, referrals and, and people reaching out to other people in the industry. And I think you have a awesome perspective on this different than anyone else because your wife is a photographer and I talk so many times about how crazy it is that I think people don't go harder into building really strong relationships with other photographers other venues other wedding planners how important would you say referrals are in your business or just that idea of people wanting you to be the person that's working alongside of them versus your traditional forms of just advertising it's real. That's a really interesting perspective or question because for the photo industry, photographers have a such, uh, I think, a, a higher, a bigger advantage when it comes to making relationships. Not that it's not the same, not that I couldn't do the same, but the amount of work, like for, for a photographer to supply some images to a venue so they can make a book or they can do an ad um, or they do a style shoot together. You know, it's a lot of work, but it's it's a, it's an easier process for me to create a video for a venue. Yeah, I could slap something together. But it's still work. It's more editing on top of the editing I already have to do. So right. I, you know, being the person that kind of edits a lot of my own stuff, I've really kind of painted myself into a corner. So I don't really have the flexibility and the time to do a lot of that stuff. But the high end planners that I do work with, I've made good relationships with just by being easy to work with the day of the wedding, yep. being accommodating to them during the planning process, and then also strengthening that relationship after the fact by sharing the wedding with them and offering them footage and that sort of thing. So I've done it. I've done a decent job with that. And I get a lot of high end planners that always come to me 
um, when they're shopping around for their brides. And it's not just me they're coming to. They're going to three or four different other high end videographers. But, you know, I get my share of those bookings where I think photographers, you know, I think they photographers have become the go to for those venues and planners. They don't I don't think a lot of the venues think to go to the videographer and say, hey, can I build this relationship with you? Because I want video clips because Because you're usually the last thing that's booked. Yeah, well, not even that, because like so I think people are venues and 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 planners, I think, are just starting to realize, along with everybody else, that video is getting precedence and getting priority on social media platforms, not post with text and photo. Right. So with video being more prioritized in these markets, it's going to be on us to fill that void, to fill that vacuum. And I think I'm starting to notice that just learn that myself now that I need to be leveraging more video content for those relationships. Yeah. And I think that's important. And again, I'm not the master or the know-it-all on that subject because I'm not the marketing person in my relationship with my wife and business. I'm the artist and yep. I've always been that perpetual artist. So, but I, I am starting to see the value in doing that. For sure. And let's dive in now and talk a little bit about editing. This, the, the, I think the most controversial part of the industry where people, I see probably 90% of people that just cannot stand the editing backlog, the idea of having to edit. They love shooting and then they remember that there's so much more to it. Um, I want to talk about kind of some of the stuff that you're working on on this topic, but also just a little bit about kind of maybe your approach, but more importantly, what you're working on that I think could really help editors. Yeah, so editing sucks. Um, (laughs) It really does. I love it. I love at the end of an edit, I look back on it and go, man, I created that. That's really cool. And now that I have kids, I look at it and I go, you know, 20, 30 years from now, my kids can look at this and go, wow, that looks really funny because it's probably going to be completely dated. But they're going to see the, 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 the quality of the work. They're going to see the craftsmanship behind it. It's like building an old bench, you know, building a piece of furniture. It's going to be there forever. You know, it's got this intrinsic value that can be handed down. And I'm proud of that. But the process of building it and spending 40 hours editing something when I'd rather be spending time with my kids on a beautiful day, that part just sucks. Outsourcers, there's some great outsourcing companies out there. And we, we tried getting into the space very early on. I think uh, these companies have done a really good job of providing an outsourced service for editing. However, I do think the quality level is capped. Mm-hmm. I do think that they are able to produce a, a decent product at a expensive price for to to the production company but it does relieve that backlog so you have to ask yourself are you happy with what the quality is going to be overall from those outsourced companies and that'll relieve that pressure or do you want to continue to do the work yourself and be bogged down with editing in a backlog or you can hire a team of editors and keep them in house but we all know that's a revolving door you know i've hired i've had editors come come through here over the last few years and it's like they just burn out they burn out after right. a while on weddings and they want to go do something else yeah and that's tough because it's you know it takes it takes years to get people to really understand your style and then if you finally feel like you lock in and have the right person they move on you're starting from scratch again i think that's the toughest part about outsourcing to people is that it's hard for someone to understand your style it's one thing to just edit a video it's another thing to edit a wedding the way that you want it to represent your brand exactly so here's the fork in the road the fork in the road is you outsource, okay? And maybe do like teasers yourself and little tiny promotional edits, okay? And so you still have a hand on some of your work and you can you know, inject your own personality into some of those video edits, but your main products are being outsourced. I think that's a good road to go down, okay? Um, nothing that I teach is like don't outsource. In fact, I'm, t- I'm trying to teach the people who are doing the work on the outsource side. Um, then the other fork in the road is keep it in-house, but be more efficient 
and understand that what a bride sees as quality may not be what you see as quality, right? So yeah. there's this, you know, I know it can be better, but is the bride going to notice that it's not as good as it could have been? And that's a tough, that's the blue pill. That is a hard pill to swallow because mm-hmm. it's a leap of faith. It is the, I know I have the ability to make this better. Am I cheating the bride by giving them something less just for the sake of cutting hours and making this more cost efficient? That is a tough decision to make. And it's almost, it borders on morality. It borders mm-hmm. on ethics. And I think in business, if you look at any other successful business model, look at lawn doctor, look at your landscaper, look at uh, your cleaning people. You know, they're all doing the job that's good enough. Now, they may go above and beyond to make it better and, and to be as good as they can be without, but they're not like spending as much time as they could. Right. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. doing it just enough to make it cost efficient and to make money while providing a quality service. Yeah. Any business is going to try to figure out how they can shave a few minutes off something to make some extra money. I mean, it's exactly. just, that's just business. That's business, a business model. And that's why you go into business to make money. You don't go yeah. into business to be an artist that starves. Yeah. You no. Know? So you could either be Andy Warhol, you know, a, a struggling Andy Warhol in the beginning, and then, you know, hope to make it big just on, you know, your notoriety, which does happen in this business. Um, but chances are that's not going to happen to you. You know, it's, it's like celebrity status. It's not mm-hmm. going to happen to everybody. So you have to find that balance between business and art. And if you find that balance, that's where success lies because you have time for both. Now, I think the key to that is efficiency. So what I'm trying to teach people is how to be a good editor, produce a good enough product efficiently. That's the key. So, you know, if you really are adamant about keeping the editing under your own control uh, and doing the work yourself, you need to be efficient and you need to be consistently good and efficient, not constantly like not doing an edit and saying, oh, the next one or that last one wasn't, it was too, it was good and this one's not as good. They have to be consistent. So you're right. providing consistency to your clients and then showing, and then here's the other thing. The work that your bride sees needs to be the work that you can produce. Don't show only your best work and then try to live up to that standard every time. That's show, an interesting point too, yeah. Show your mediocre work because then you're only exceeding it, matching it or exceeding it. So if you're constantly, that this is where I, I, I struggled in the beginning. I, when DSLRs hit, I was always trying to push the envelope. I was always trying to, to break the mold and trying to create something new and better every time. And I was losing money because I was spending more, more and more time and paying people more and more and adding this crew member and adding this crew member. And I was spending buying this new gear that would bring the production level to a new, a new height. And that was all great. And the product grew and it evolved and it became amazing, but the money wasn't there. I was spending too much time and cost. There was too much expense. It wasn't until I said, you know what? Screw it. This is my product. This is what I'm going to produce consistently. And it's good. And it's, it's considered, you know, very, very good uh, among the ranks of the industry, but I'm not exceeding this anymore. This is it. This Mm -hmm. is it. Um, you know, I, I, I won't buy a piece of equipment now unless it brings me immediate return on investment. Hmm. Interesting. Like somebody, you know, every, I get emails all the time, dude, did you see this? Did you see the, the you know, this, the new product? And I'm like, I'm not buying it. Is if I, if I spend $700 on that, am I going to make $2,100 back immediately? If not, I'm not buying it. Yeah. And that's a good point. I, I, in touching back really quickly on what you were just saying too, of not, not only showing your best work. And that's a great point because I think what I see so often is that, 
you know, someone will do 25 weddings in a year or 40 weddings in a year, and then they'll only, you know, post their two best weddings. But then number one, I don't think it helps you because it doesn't look like you're very busy. Um, and it also, like you said, it kind of sets up an, an unrealistic expectation because, you know, you and I both know that if you shoot 50 weddings in a year, there's not 50 weddings in a year that went exactly, exactly as planned. And I think it's important for people to realize that, like, just because you have this fantastic film on your website that is your featured film, it doesn't mean that they have a guarantee that that's what their film's going to be because that's just not realistic. That what that what's so tough about filming weddings is that you don't write the script, you don't write the story. Like to an extent, you can control certain things, but you're just really filming their day. And there's not a guarantee that it's always going to be great. You can't guarantee what people are going to say in speeches or what they say in the ceremony. So I think it's great great point to show you know all your work as much as you possibly can because. It's it's got to average out somewhere and not just your your cap. Right. Uh, and, you, you know, on a wedding, you're handed chaos and expected to create something yeah. out of it. But uh, here's the other thing. Brides don't know the difference between good and great. Yep. That's why and they I, don't and spend. I, I truly that's why believe it's hard this. To, that's why it's hard to talk people into pricing. It really is. And when I get a bride that calls me and says, oh, my God, I love your work. I've been on your website. I've watched all your videos. I cry. I don't even know the people. I love your work. It's amazing. <laughs> and I say, OK, it's eight thousand dollars. And they go, I'm going to go shop around. And yeah. they'll well, book this, somebody. This company said that they could do it for three. Is there any way that you can? Yeah. Because yeah, they don't see those little things that you're spending the extra time on. Right. It doesn't, the, the person charging three doesn't bother me. You know who pisses me off? The person charging six. Be- because they could easily get to eight. They could charge eight. And then yep. we all make more money. Hmm. Right. Doesn't that make sense? I yeah, actually, no, at, entirely. At, one, at one point, this is going back probably 2010 or 2011, I actually went to the videographers in my area, a few of them. And I told them, you have to raise your prices. It'll help everybody if out. You guys, if you guys raise your price, rising tide is going to raise all ships. Why wouldn't you? Why are, why are you $3,000 less than me? I look at your work. It's good. Why are you $3,000 less than me? That's stupid. Raise your price. And one of them actually called me up and said, oh, my God, why didn't I do that, that sooner? It is an interesting point, though. It's like if, if no wedding cinematographer in the country charged under $5,000, then we'd all still get work. It's so true. Be- because they wouldn't have an option. The only reason that they want your $10,000 rates to be 5000 is because someone's not marketing themselves correctly. Exactly. And if everybody just said, you know what, as a whole, let's just make a bare minimum that's way higher than what we expect, they'll have to pay it. Like it's, but yeah, people undercut and undercut and undercut. And then it's like, now you're doing a job and you're sitting in the edit, just, just pissed off because you feel like you're wasting your time for what you charged and it's your own fault. Right. If you look at retail models and you look at other business models, like other service business models, there's baseline, there's baseline for landscaping. There's baseline for uh, retail and books and clothing. There's baseline prices, right? I mean, you find your discount retailers, but it's, you know, it's a crappy product. When I go to Primark, I know I'm going to buy something that's going to fall apart in three months. Yep. If I go to Lord and Taylor, I'm going to buy something that's going to last me a long time. But you can really kind of look at any business and say, there's a baseline price. Weddings and artistic fields like graphic design and web design. It's very, it's, it's one of the few industries that don't have a baseline. That's true. And people are just charging what they want. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's stupid. There needs to be a baseline. There absolutely needs to be a baseline. But I don't know how to, to convince people, especially because it's so many, new, so many new people are coming into the market. It's hard to convince them right off the bat that, hey, you're worth it. And I don't know if we'll ever get to that because, like you said, the saturation of this market, the saturation of the creative market in general – 
because it is easier than ever to get into it just based on price alone that you can, you know, start a wedding cinematography business for so affordable oh, compared to what you could. It's it's the reason that you probably won't ever get to that. So it really, I think, is it's harder than ever, like you said, to probably be in that market. And it just comes down to, you know, can you can you make a little bit more per wedding and do less and do the same amount of, you know, make the same amount of money doing 20 weddings at X amount versus 40 at half that amount. It's just kind of just finding the balance. But yeah, I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where there's a baseline because there's always going to be a new guy that just wants to work yeah. that doesn't have the same situation you do in life and in family. And they're like, oh, I, I can do that for a thousand rather than 10. Why not? There's also the risk factor. Weddings are a one shot deal. You don't get a chance to do it again. Yeah, right? that's what I sell brides on all the time. Oh, right, but here's the thing. So you get guys, some guy who comes into the industry and he's he's unsure of his abilities. He's unsure that he can not screw up the wedding. And that's causing him to not charge more money. And I think that's, uh, it's so psychological. It's so rooted in um, fear, um, which, and it's, it's, it's actually... I'm glad that fear exists because I hate people. I hate seeing people screw up weddings. I hate when I see videographers screw up somebody's wedding. You don't know yeah. how many people I get contact me a year. Rob, my video. I love your work. Can you take this video that somebody else <laughs> shot? I, I say no for many different reasons, but the answer is always no. And it's um, it, it's heartbreaking. And and I understand that that's holding people back. But think about our industry. It's one of the few industries where you're handed so much liability and risk and there's no there's no licensing. There's no regulation. There's no training. I mean, you're, you're in charge of capturing something that's somebody's paying possibly six figures for. And there's no accountability. That's true. The only accountability is if you really F it up, you know, there's somebody could sue you. But again, there's legal protections to even protect you there. You can hide behind an LLC or an INC, right. you know? So really, I mean, there's no real accountability and that's a scary, that's a scary thing. So like, so how do you reconcile that with prices? How do you reconcile that risk, the cost of sales, the cost of doing business versus being an artist? Plus it's almost like a mathematical equation. Plus how much do I want to make per hour? How do you formulate that into an equation that is going to be attractive for somebody to step into the business and attractive for a bride to pay a, a higher price. So going back to that fork in the road where you're deciding what editing path you're going to take for your video business, like whether you're going to do it in house or you're going to outsource, um, you know, it's my thought that whichever way you go, there should be standards, you know, there should be a, a plan in place for whoever's going to be editing the footage that it is that they have a plan going into it and that it, it makes the cost model make sense. So let me give you an example. Um, my education is geared toward teaching editors how to be efficient and good, right? So what I want to do is teach people methodology that gets the edit going quickly and gets it done faster so they don't have to charge more to whoever's paying, if that makes sense. So yeah. what I've done is created an online course specifically geared towards wedding cinematic wedding editing and right now it's only for the cinematic in the future it will teach you documentary edits trailers same day edits like the whole nine yards but i wanted to start with the root problem where the backlog lies and the backlog in this business lies in those feature edits and in, in the, the longer highlights mm -hmm. you know five seven ten minutes uh 20 minutes you know those highlights films um they take the creative edit it takes a long time to do so i've created this course, and you can find out more information about it when it's available. It's not yet available, 
but we are in the final stages of producing the course, and you can find out more information by going to dreadededit.com. Which is a great name, by the way. That was the name. <laughs> when we came up with that name years ago, when we, we, we actually started a wedding video outsourcing outsource edit service. We yeah, I remember f- when you talked about that on your podcast. We were yep. one of the first to try the business model and we failed. Uh, we didn't understand how hard it would be to take other people's footage and edit it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now I think, you know, here we are five years later, I think that the overall level of shooting overall in the wedding video business has increased. So I don't think that'll be, it'll still be a factor, but I don't think it's going to be as much of a factor as it was. I mean, we had newbies who had never picked up a DSLR shooting weddings with DSLRs and then handing us the footage to make something out of. And it was ridiculously hard. So we, we started developing a vetting process, but that's neither here nor there because we had to let the business model die. It wasn't working. Plus at the same time we were doing education. So now I kept the name and the name is dreaded edit. You can also do the dreaded edit.com and it'll get you to the same website. And if you just sign up for my mailing list. I'm not going to spam you. This is not like a way for me to spam you. I'm not going to sell your information. This is just so you'll be informed when the course is available. This course is going to be geared towards editing cinematic wedding videos five minutes or longer. That's exactly what it is. And I'm going to show you my exact methodology to do that from soup to nuts, start to finish, from ingesting the footage all the way through to exporting. So, I mean, it's hours and hours and hours of content. So it's going to be delivered uh, in a method online. We don't know exactly how yet, but go to dreadededit.com and sign up. And you also get my free ebook just for signing up. And it's awesome. 10, 10 simple tips to making a better wedding film. And I wrote this book with the intention of just giving people a guide to go into the wedding day with, to come out at the end with the best footage possible and the most footage possible to give you options when you sit down to edit. Awesome. And I think it's, I think it's great that you do that. I think it's important too, for people to realize like, you know, there are free resources everywhere. There are all these resources on YouTube and all these different platforms, but I always find it's very important to listen to people that are doing it and have done it successfully. And I think that it's, um, you know, you're such a great resource for people to lean into. And that when you talk about how to, um, edit better and edit better cinematic films, you've been doing that for a while. You're known for that. You do it so well that there's so much value in listening to the people that do it well. So I definitely just encourage you to check out what Rob's doing. He's uh, just a fantastic cinematographer. It's just awesome to kind of have followed even just the last four or five years of just so much stuff that has changed in this industry, but you're continuing to just do it extremely well. So really appreciate you taking some time and talking just about your experience, just lots of stuff to, to think about and process. And hope this is valuable to a lot of wedding cinematographers that are kind of on that um, fence of how can they kind of step up their game. I think this editing will play a huge part of it. And hopefully um, you can check out Rob's course and definitely um, learn some stuff from there. Rob, thanks so much for taking some time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. And thanks for doing this podcast and uh, bringing, you know, the, the option of, of education and knowledge to the industry. I really appreciate it. I love it. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Tell Vanessa hello and enjoy your uh, new family. I will. And congratulations to you two on your new edition. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great one. Well, thanks to Rob for just some valuable, valuable information. Lots to think about, lots to process and, and, and to chew on. I hope this was valuable to you. I know from somebody that's in this industry that it always is encouraging for me to hear people's story of how they got to where they're at today. 
And if you have questions, I would definitely recommend that you get in touch with Rob. He's um, just a guy that loves um, teaching, a guy that loves educating, and he's got some great resources, as he mentioned, for you to check out. So thanks for listening. Would love to hear your feedback. Contact me on Twitter at Scott W. McKenna. And until next time, thanks for listening. I will, and congratulations to you two on your new edition. You too.